I'm Stephen Betts, and this is The Best Books, a podcast for Latter-day Saints. The law of consecration is a central doctrine in The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But since the 1830s, some Latter-day Saints have misunderstood how the law applies to them. Today, historian Stephen Harper joins me to discuss the details of the law of consecration and how we can live it better today. Let's get into it. Steve, great to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be with you. We're talking about your recently published book with Deseret Book, Let's Talk About the Law of Consecration. Steve, I was surprised reading this book as someone who studies Latter-day Saint history. There was a lot of stuff in here that I hadn't thought about that I didn't know about the law of consecration as a lifelong member of the church. I'd like to start at the very beginning uh, with something that I found really surprising and, and helpful for, for thinking through the, what the law of consecration is and how it fit in 19th century America. And that is Jackson County, Missouri. Jackson County is named after Andrew Jackson. And I'll just leave it there for you to explain to us who's Andrew Jackson and what does that have to, what does it have to do with the early church? Well, cool questions. So that's what, what I study professionally is the revelations of Joseph Smith. And of course, uh, in, in their context, in their historical world, and that's the world of Andrew Jackson and Jacksonian democracy. So at the time that most of Joseph Smith's revelations are received, or at least many of them, Andrew Jackson is the president of the United States. He represents a, a sort of a departure the United States away from the East Coast, Virginia, Massachusetts presidents and toward a Westerner. Uh, he's a slave owner. He's famous. He's a folk hero. He's, a, he's won his reputation for Indian fighting, fighting with Native Americans. And as a president, he makes dramatic and uh, devastating decisions with regard to Native Americans. And the fact that his name is the one applied to the county where the Lord reveals to Joseph Smith that the saints will build New Jerusalem is a just a fascinating indicator that you've got a conflict of cultures. you got a culture war all over the United States, but, but especially right there on the far western edge. It's a confluence of dynamics, slavery, Native American settlement and resettlement and forced expulsion, uh, Latter-day Saint gathering based on revelation and Jacksonian democracy in some ways at, at its finest, right, being represented by clear examples of what it means for the people to be sovereign. We might think that's a great idea, but Jacksonians think of the people in a narrow way, a very narrow way. Jacksonian democracy is qualified with the adjective because it's not democracy for everyone. It's democracy for white men. And it's based on the citizens having and controlling subjects. And the subjects are everyone else, right? And so that the question of whether Latter-day Saints are citizens or subjects is a question that becomes highly relevant 
by the summer of 1831 in Jackson County, Missouri. And the Jacksonians answer that question by tarring and feathering the bishop, in some ways racializing him and signifying to him and all of his followers that Latter-day Saints are subjects in Jackson County, not citizens. Yeah, so I want to follow up on a couple of things you just said. First of all, Missouri, as of 1820, you have the Missouri Compromise. Can you talk a little bit about the Missouri Compromise, what that has to do with slavery and Jacksonian democracy? Yeah, you bet. It's really quite fundamental. Missouri comes into the Union along with Maine just a decade or so before the Latter-day Saints began gathering in Missouri. And Missouri exists to perpetuate slavery, right? It juts up north of the uh, of the typical line where slavery is. So it's surrounded by so, uh, free soil on three sides. Missourians are vigilant about maintaining slavery. They're totally dedicated to that proposition. They're adamant about it. And they're also, I don't want to, I don't mean to be terribly negative with the word paranoid, but in the time and place we're talking about, there is a, a degree of hypersensitivity, maybe paranoia, for example, of, about anybody who bases their life on owning other human beings and subjecting them. You better have the power to keep them in subjection uh, because they don't want to stay in subjection. So Jacksonians are aware of slave revolts. Uh, they're aware of and are very hypersensitive to anyone who might be sympathetic to their slaves and inclined to ally with their slaves. And so when they read Latter-day Saints as doing those things, uh, the saints are very, very opposed by Jacksonians. So you mentioned something you called racialization and its relationship with tarring and feathering. I think a lot of Latter-day Saints are familiar with the idea of tarring and feathering from histories of early uh, the early church. But why, why did that have something to do with race? Well, in the United States in 1831 and all the years before and after it, around that time, uh, race is maybe the most significant determinant of politics, economics, society. I mean, it's huge. And it's still a very prevalent and powerful force today. And just to be brief about it and, and overly simplistic, uh, society is organized very much by race, as well as other things, right? Race, uh, class, gender, all kinds of things. And race is used to signify who are the people and who aren't. I mean, it's, it's the, one of the most important dynamics of who has political power. And who therefore has economic power? It's it's structural. Uh, the the society is structured by race, and so the people who are in power want to stay in power, and they structure society uh, based on race. So when when, for example, you ha have an anomaly, when you have a a strange thing happen on the courthouse square in Independence, Missouri. In the summer of 1833, you have a white New Englander, a man named Edward Partridge, whose ancestors were 
revolutionaries, right? They've uh, lobbied for the American Revolution, fought for the revolution. This is, in some ways, as American a person as you could imagine. And he presents a problem to Jacksonians uh, in Independence, Missouri in the summer of 1833, he and all of the Latter-day Saints, because they don't do things the way Jacksonians do. Jacksonians think of themselves as chosen people, for sure, and so do Latter-day Saints. And Jacksonians organize their society based on popular sovereignty, but, but with a narrow conception of who the people are, right? So it's very much a power spread widely, more widely than almost any place had been for several hundred years, but also power organized very strictly within white uh, structures, right, and male structures. So when Edward Partridge comes on the scene, and he's a white male who should have been respected and had, you know, he's a successful business person. He's a major landowner. He buys couple thousand acres right away. He's prosperous. He's leading this group as their bishop. So he presents a puzzle to the the judges, the lawyers, the ministers, the county clerk, aspiring politician named Lilburn Boggs and others. And uh, they decide that they will signify how power is organized by dragging Edward from his home in the political space, right, the public sphere, right in front of the courthouse, they'll cover him with with hot tar and feathers. They'll humiliate him, and they will subject him, right? They will show and tell. Edward Partridge is, doesn't have freedom. He can't come and go and do whatever he pleases. He's a subject to us. He's just like one of our slaves that we keep in bondage. It's just like one of the Native Americans that we pushed off of this land and pushed over the border. And we will do with him and the rest of the Latter-day Saints whatever we please, peaceably if we can and forcibly if we must. So that's how it works. And it's a fascinating dynamic. It's a deeply troublesome thing, right? Uh, It's a question about what is at the heart of America and about of society everywhere. Is America a land of the free? Is it a place of religious freedom? If so, what are the limits of religious freedom? Is it a place where uh, power is in the people? If so, who are the people? Who gets to decide who the people are? So all these questions that are fundamentally American history questions are uh, in some ways microcosmically available to us on the Missouri frontier in the early 1830s with the Latter-day Saints playing a prominent role in, in the violent contest for who gets to answer these questions. The Lord is very much interested in and involved in this controversy, right? He speaks through Joseph Smith, uh, and he speaks directly to this issue. You can see that well in Doctrine and Covenants section 1, where the Lord says, I knew what was going to happen, and I called on Joseph Smith to bring a solution to this terrible crisis, this this series of events that's going to lead to calamities because everybody's gone their own way after the worship of their own God. He's critiquing Jacksonian culture in section one. And it's not by any means not the only place. He critiques it uh, lots of other places. He calls the settlers who are already there enemies in Doctrine and Code section 52 when he calls 
Joseph Smith and others to go from Ohio to Missouri and visit this place. And one of the most interesting references to me is when they get there and say, where, where will Zion be and where will the temple stand? The Lord says, well, it's going to be in the place that's now called independence. Think about that. In the place that's now called independence. As if the Lord is saying it needs a new name and a temple and a total reorientation away from its values toward the values of Zion. Right. Uh, it's not won't be long till Joseph Smith then or already has received a revelation. Doctrine comes 45 received back in Ohio where the Lord says Zion is where people from all nations will flow. It'll be uh, not nationalistic. It'll be international in that sense, but not it won't have the nationalism or the, the sort of same societal structure as Jacksonian culture does or our culture does. It won't be organized by race, right? So the Lord in the revelations gives Joseph Smith specific instructions as well as a, a large vision for an alternative society. And the Lord talks of himself as if he is the chief executive, he is the legislature, and he is the judiciary of this new kingdom. He speaks about it explicitly, right? If if you're trained in 19th century American history, politics, religion, you can't miss these explicit references that the Lord is making. Things, things like Doctrine and section 38 or 41, where the Lord says, I will be your king. I will be your lawgiver. I will give unto you my law. And th th that might seem totally un-American and completely antithetical to everything that is sacred and, and virtuous. But Somebody who makes that conclusion might be missing some of the ugly underside of Jacksonian America and not realizing how the Lord's kingdom that he's revealing through Joseph Smith is so much more inclusive, so much more vast. You might think, yeah, but it's, there's no freedom in a kingdom. Well, the, the way the Lord maps it out, everybody is free. Uh, he is the one who endowed them with agency. In Doctrine Comes 101, he says, I gave everyone, all flesh, moral agency. All flesh, you can't hardly choose two more inclusive words than that. All flesh, whatever color it is, wherever it came from, I gave it moral agency. And therefore, the Lord says, it is an abomination for one person to have another person in bondage. So he rejects and objects to the basic fundamentals of Jacksonian society. And many of the revelations of Joseph Smith reject it and propose and prophesy and build an alternative political, economic, and social world. The Latter-day Saints, because of external opposition and internal opposition, fail to fully realize that alternative, but we continue today to strive for it and see our way forward is there's enormous continuity between what President Nelson is emphasizing and teaching. Peacemakers wanted, needed, right? Advocating that we lead out in abandoning attitudes and actions of racial prejudice, teaching that women are and can be endowed with priesthood power and so forth. These are not things President Nelson invented for the 21st century. These are things that were at the beginning of the Restoration that we didn't completely grasp and internalize 
as we might have done if we had made other choices. And I'm not, I'm no better than than my ancestors or the ones who came before. I would have altered and failed and struggled in the same ways that they might have. What's remarkable in history is not how easily and quickly and how far people alter and fail and are mean to each other. What's remarkable is that there were hundreds and then thousands of people who followed a young prophet, Edward and Lydia Partridge. Think about this, right? Prosperous people in Painesville, Ohio, with a bright commercial future, a large home, beautiful young family. And they give up everything, every comfort to move to the Missouri frontier, to take a literal beating and persecution to build the kingdom of God on the earth, because that's what the revelations of a 24 or five-year-old prophet tell them to do. That's what's remarkable. That's what's remarkable about this. Steve, you trace out in the book sort of what appear to be parallel or separate trajectories for why the project of Zion, the project of building New Jerusalem in the early 1830s failed. And one of those is from the outside perspective, directly related to slavery. It's related to, you mentioned earlier, anxieties of Jacksonian Americans about slave rebellions. Of course, 1822, Denmark, VC in South Carolina. In 1831, more, more approximately, of course, we have Nat Turner in Virginia, right? So they're concerned. And then in 1833, in the summer of 1833, William W. Phelps writes, uh, writes an editorial uh, called Free People of Color and basically invites free people of color to come to uh, Zion, come to New Jerusalem. Well, of course, this doesn't play well. Uh, so talk about that. And then on the other side, I want to hear also about how there are some difficulties with consecration. There are difficulties with getting people to commit fully to this to this uh, vision. Uh, and that'll require us to get into more of the details of what consecration involves. So let's let's start there and, and we'll, we'll move on from there. So William Phelps is the church's printer, the church's main writer, and he's He's called by the Lord at the same time William, sorry, Edward Partridge is called. And so to go and, and to, to be what the Revelation says, planted in Zion. So they're supposed to be first. They're supposed to get the infrastructure up and running, including a press. And so William Phelps does that. He starts a newspaper. He starts a couple of newspapers. And in one of them, the Evening and the Morning Star, he publishes an editorial that is naive, right? He's a northern newspaper guy. He's been editing in Canandaigua. And in these times, you write uh, really opinionated stuff in the newspapers. The idea that a, that a newspaper ought to have kind of a neutral stance or be objective is, is brand new, or at least is not, it didn't belong in the 19th century. So Phelps comes down here to Missouri and he writes an editorial, Free People of Color. He talks about elements of the Missouri State Legal Code that allow for free Blacks to migrate. And he kind of details how that could be done. His motive is questioned by the Missourians. They say he is sort of in a veiled, very thinly veiled way, telling free Black people how to come to Missouri to overthrow Missouri and the slave culture, right? To bring a Latter-day Saint regime and, and free the Blacks and and so forth. And so he is just before the ink is dry on this thing, he is opposed and shocking. He's in a different world than he came from not long before. And he hastily 
adds an extra. He publishes an extra where he says, oh, you've misinterpreted me. I didn't really mean that. We don't want free Blacks in Missouri any more than you do. And he goes so far as to say, we don't even want them in the church. When you read it, especially you read it in context or, or contrast with 2 Nephi 26, right? Or, or these passages of the scripture where the Lord says, I invite all to come to me, black and white, bond and free. I deny none who come. And you read that piece from Phelps and it, it's like a gut punch. It really hurts. And of course, it's one of many things that have ha- have a legacy in the, the church and have had consequences that weren't ideal that the Lord certainly didn't want. He didn't prescribe. But when push came to shove and the saints could either follow the the Book of Mormon and the Revelations toward toward the inclusive vision that they set forth or not get not get beat up or tarred and feathered or or whatever or worse. When push came to shove, we in those days, Latter-day Saints in those days sort of turned their backs on their black brothers and sisters, of which there were a few, not very many in the church at that time, but they they definitely lost that struggle. The saints lost the struggle and people like um, Pete, but we only know him as Pete, a convert at the very earliest days of the church. We lose him. He doesn't stay with the church. We don't know for sure what happens to him, but it might be that he he was unwelcome by the saints before very long. So it's a sad uh, part of our history there. So what does is, what is consecration look like and why does it, I think we'll understand pretty quickly why it uh, brooks a lot of controversy and, of course, a lot of resistance, even from well-intentioned members of the church. This is a really very difficult way to live. It's a very, I mean, it's it's all in, right? It's it's literally all in. So tell us tell us about how it how it comes about specifically. What are the details of that uh, system look like? Great question. I, I might preface it by saying um, it's not necessarily a difficult way to live. I listened recently to uh, Justin Dyer's BYU devotional, which was profound. And he talked about the Savior's admonition to take upon ourselves his burden because it's light. And so Professor Dyer essentially says, you're going to have a burden, no matter who you are, what your situation is, you're going to carry heavy burdens in life. And so the Savior's invitation is not to go burdenless. It's not to either take his yoke or no yoke whatsoever and just live free. It's to take his yoke because he's also in it with you, right? He he makes it light. So uh, we could think of consecration as really, really hard, but to do that would be a culturally conditioned way of thinking, right? That would be a that would be from a 21st century or even earlier American consumer capitalist orientation where the reason to exist is to buy stuff, right? That's, that's, the, that, that's what a person is, is their disposable income. That's how they're measured. That's how they're thought of. That's, that's the value that they have. And where individuals we think of are our motives are enlightened self-interest, right? Whatever it is that might get me ahead financially or get me more property, that's what I do. That's maybe why I choose my major in college. Not me and you, right? We made a terrible turn there. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, these are the, the things that make enormous differences in the world in which we live. Well, 
the world in which Joseph Smith lived is quickly becoming the world we know. It's it's determined very much by a market revolution, right? It's ongoing at the very time that these revelations are coming. So as consumer capitalism is growing and becoming fundamentally connected to American politics, economics, and so and power structures and so forth, the Lord speaks into that world and he says, you know how you guys think ownership is yours and, and it's a fundamental principle? The Lord says, it isn't. I own everything. And you know how you think you're free and there are no strings attached? Well, there are. You are free. I made you free. I gave you agency, but you and I are in covenant with each other. We have obligations to each other. You have obligations to every single other person who lives on the planet. You're not free to not be obligated. And so we end up in the doctrine comes with a very, very different vision of economics and the power structures around them than the world that the revelations are are spoken into. So again, a culture war, massive culture war. And of course, Latter-day Saints uh, in 1830 and in 2023, 1831, 32, 33, are complex people, right? I believe in those revelations with my whole soul. I think they're beautiful. I think they're powerful. And I also am very much motivated by enlightened self-interest. And I am consumed with consuming. So I'm a product of my time and place very much indoctrinated and acculturated by the idea I should buy stuff I don't need with money that I don't have because that's how I'll be happy and that's how I'll be important. And so it's this terrible pull that probably all of us feel inside ourselves in one way or another. The pull is between living a consecrated life where the reason you do what you do is because you love God and you love God's children. That's the way the law of consecration starts. Verse 29 of Doctrine comes section 42. If thou lovest me, thou shalt serve me and keep all my commandments. And then the very next thing is thou wilt remember the poor and consecrate out of what you have for their support with a covenant and deed that cannot be broken, right? With an unbreakable commitment. So consecration is motivated by love for God and love for other people. And when a person is filled with love for God and others, consecration is not hard. The burden is light, right? When they can get out from under the oppressive yoke of consuming for the sake of consuming and being owned by owning, then they can really find a, a much lighter burden under consecration. I know this from having some tiny tastes of that myself, but also a lot of experience with being owned by owning and so on. So I hope folks can see that there's this war that was dominating at the time of Joseph Smith, war between market-driven consumerism, and that that continues, if anything, in more forceful power today. And the church ever since then has been negotiating its relationship to that, and it's been a, a bumpy ride. You'll notice that the prophets are almost continually sort of adjusting things and navigating things in response to being in the world, but not of the world. There are several places in the Revelations where the Lord says, well, 
if they're going to pass that law, then we'll have to do things this way or a little differently. Well, you're going to need to make friends with the mammon of unrighteousness in this case, because you're going to need an alliance with them. So it's an ongoing uh, tension-filled relationship between the way the world uh, we live in is structured and organized economically and the way the Zion is is forecast. And the law of consecration is the law of Zion. As soon as we can change the world to consecration, we'll have Zion. We won't have any more of the structures of society where people think they're better than other people or that oppress other people or exploit other people. We will be completely motivated and oriented by different values. Foremost among them are love for God and love for each other. And like you said, the way that that was expressed in the early church looks a lot different than it does now. Obviously, early church, they're talking about you deed over your property to the bishop, right? And you give over your surplus as you continue to make money. So explicitly for the explicit care of the poor, to take care of those in need, take care of your brothers and sisters. But more crucially, I think, is what you've been talking about is not the property itself. It's the orientation towards the property to say, this is not mine. I'm a steward. I'm somebody who's been appointed with an inheritance, with a responsibility to care for something that's the Lord's. That's a very useful way to see the contrast we've been talking about, right? Ownership is characteristic of the culture that the Lord opposes in the revelations. And stewardship is characteristic of Zion. And the difference is God is the owner of everything for a steward, the earth and everything in it, right? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof from the Psalms. Uh, you get that from King Benjamin's sermon. You get it from the book of Deuteronomy. You get it in the Pearl Great Price. It's everywhere. It's pervasive in the scriptures. God created and we are his creatures, and we are uh, stewards. He's given us agency or power to act, and he's given us things to act upon or stewardships. But it is an illusion for us to think that in any kind of ultimate sense, we own anything. And uh, Joseph Smith taught that, Brigham Young taught that emphatically, and, and certainly uh, we're taught that as well from the revelations. Wise and faithful stewards inherit the kingdom of God, and unwise and unfaithful stewards inherit nothing, uh, at least not, not all they could inherit. And those, those ideas are repeated over and over and over in the Doctrine and Covenants, as well as elsewhere in the Scriptures. Ownership seems like the best idea until we catch it from an eternal perspective, and then it seems like a foolish thing to do. You remember the Gospel of Luke passage about the guy who has to build bigger and bigger barns because he gets more and more stuff, and then he dies. And then the question is, then who shall these things be? One passage in the Revelations to Joseph Smith, the Lord talks about the saints in Kirtland, and he's so frustrated with them. He says, all their detestable things. He just frustrated that their detestable things have more of their time and attention than he has and then his law has and and this is this, some of this is addressed to one of the best people who's ever lived and that's Newell Kimball Whitney Newell Whitney is just a lovely powerful beautiful soul who's like the rest of us he's conflicted inside he's pulled between these two loves love for god and love for stuff 
and love for the sense of well-being or a sense of superiority that comes with acquiring stuff. Joseph Smith gives Bishop Whitney a beautiful priesthood blessing one time and prophesies, eventually you will overcome your littleness of soul and your covetous, your <laughs> all your covetous desires. Makes me glad I wasn't the recipient of that blessing, but I can learn from it. So Steve, we're, I think a lot of people, you point this out over and over again in the book, which is a lot of people are under the impression, a lot of Latter-day Saints are under the impression that tithing was somehow given as a lesser law to replace the law of consecration, which the early saints failed to live. And therefore, we keep the law of tithing until such time as the Lord decides to restore to us the full law of consecration, where we all live in a Zion society. You say, no, that's not the point at all. So talk to us about how we live the law of consecration now. Great, great point. So what you just said there is the story that I knew when I was a teenager and an adult uh, into my early years. I took it with me to the temple and it was jarring there because it seemed to contrast with what I was being told there. So now, many, many years later, I'm a trained historian. And so I'm asking different kinds of questions then I would have never thought to ask, where did these ideas come from? When did they begin? Where do I first find them in history? And why did they begin when they did? And when we start asking those questions, we notice that Joseph Smith never, in all the records we have from him, talked the way you described it a minute ago, right? And Brigham Young didn't do that. Wilford Woodruff didn't do that, right? So we do find some shift in the 19th century, second half, the late 19th century of people beginning to craft a narrative. Now, so by narrative, I mean sort of the connective tissue for the facts, the story we tell that we fit the facts into. You've got a pile of facts and they don't speak for themselves. So you, as you know, people make narratives that give meaning to the facts. Well, the facts, especially facts that are dissonant with our present, we need, we have a psychological need to put them into a story that makes us feel better about ourselves. So what if these are the facts? You have a doctrine and covenants and it says, offer your surplus, right? The, the doctrine comes 19. The beginning of tithing is the offering of all your surplus property into the bishop's storehouse or section 42. Remember the poor and consecrate of thy property for their support, whatever you have to impart unto them. And then details follow in there, section 51 and elsewhere about how to do that, including, as you mentioned, uh, using a piece of writing, a, a, a deed that transacts property back and forth between you and the bishop. So you have that in your Doctrine and Covenants and you're reading it in 1920 and you think, uh, we don't do any of this stuff. And so you've got facts that are at odds with each other that seem to be in tension with each other so what happens often in that situation is you search for a way to reconcile that a way to to understand it in a meaningful way and it's almost never the case that human beings create narratives that indict them or that you know they create narratives that indict other people not themselves you don't tell a story where you're the bad guy so the story that gets developed over time is, well, you know, the Lord gave the law of consecration early in church history. That's how you account for that fact. The Doctrine and Covenants 42 exists. 
But those early saints, they couldn't live it. And you could find uh, some ways to support that, right? Uh, but you would have to ignore a whole lot of other evidence that they did indeed live it well. So then you sit, the next part of the narrative is, so the Lord took the law of consecration away. And you can't find that anywhere in the Revelations. You've got a verse, verse 33 in Dr. Cummins 105 that some people cite, but it, it has, to, has to be cited out of context. That's not what it says in context. You've got some Iowa State Council minutes where Joseph Smith says, we can't live the law of consecration here. And if that's all you know about it, right, that you can take that out of context. You can you can find the pieces of the puzzle you need to make your story make sense to you, but you have to close your eyes to dozens and dozens of other pieces of the puzzle that contextualize the few you have and, and would change the story dramatically. And so the Lord took away the law of consecration. He gave the lower law of tithing instead. That lower law is that you don't find the words lower law in the scriptures. That's not the way the Lord speaks about laws. We do, but that's what I mean by narrative, right? We've given that those ideas of higher and lower as a way of making sense of things. And then we say, someday the Lord will give the higher law back. And I still am working on figuring out exactly when this narrative developed and how over time. But it strikes me that one of the kinds of work that it does is makes us feel better about our present because it blames the people who came before us for failure, and it puts the responsibility for people who come after us for faithfulness. And for me, it, it, it tells me, you're good enough, but you can't really live the law right now because God said, it's not time. That's a story I tell myself because it makes me feel better. But when I study the Doctrine and Covenants and all the related historical documents, that is not the story that emerges from it. And so I've got a conflict between my covenants and my comforting story. And um, the covenant-keeping part of me wants to throw off the comforting story and find the truth and live it. And the uh, natural man in me likes to repeat that comforting story and not study the doctrine and covenants very carefully. Yeah, so the we are under obligation. I mean, anyone who has made temple covenants knows that you're under obligation to keep the law of consecration, right? Like that's, that is the covenant you make. And, you know, as I was reading this book, I felt very, I felt very convicted by this book. You have a warning at the beginning of the book that I thought was well-placed. You say, if you don't want to learn more about the law of consecration, you should stop reading this right now because you're going to learn about it and it's going to make you uncomfortable. And in some ways though, I want to point back to what you said earlier, which was that, that comfort, though, yeah, it might make you uncomfortable because it'll tell you what you're not doing. But on the other hand, I found a kind of excitement uh, as I was reading because I realized I see people doing this around me. I see people giving themselves freely every day of the week to the people around them who need them. And so it's inspiring to me to, to see that, you know what? Yeah, we're not living in a city together, all together in this sort of environment yet, but there are people who are keeping their covenants. There are people who are consecrating every day. And there are many of them who go without any kind of recognition all throughout the church and outside of the church, uh, undoubtedly. Yeah. So there are lots of things that people do of their own free will to paraphrase from a revelation to Edward and Lydia Partridge about how they were supposed to enact 
consecration. Do many things of your own free will, bring to pass much righteousness. Don't wait to be instructed in every little detail. Just just bless people by loving God and loving others. And, and then let your material prosperity and your spiritual gifts and your time and whatever else you are a steward of, let it follow that love. Let it flow from, from the right motives. And that's consecration. And, and consecration takes all kinds of shapes and sizes and forms and dimensions. You can't prescribe to a person exactly how they should live the law of consecration because it's varied, but it's essentially to love God with your whole soul and your neighbor as yourself. And then to find out by personal revelation and experience the best ways of doing that. Now, some ways are standard. Some ways are applicable to all latter saints. We ought all to be faithful tithe payers. We ought all to offer a, as much of a fast offering as we can, can do in a reasonable way. We can do other things too. And then there are thousands of things that are just variables that people will be moved to, to do or act in certain ways based on what they are, what God has given them to contribute. There's this beautiful part of Doctrine and Covenants section 46 that says the gifts of the Spirit are spread all around. You know, very few people have all the gifts, and that's so that all can be edified of all. That's so that all of us together can bless each other. This is how a ward works and how the whole church works. Now, interestingly, what happens when saints live the law? Boy, if we haven't been living the law, something is awry because section 58 of the Doctrine and Covenants prophesies what will happen when saints live the law. And that is that they'll start off really in dire straits. But then uh, the bishop, Mr. Partridge, and others will invite people into the feast. It likens the kingdom to a feast. They'll invite first the rich and the learned, the wise and the noble. And on a superficial reading of this revelation, you might think, wow, that's, that's elitist. That's, uh, that doesn't sound like 2 Nephi 26. As you keep reading, you understand what the Lord is up to. The first people you invite to the feast are the rich and the noble, the wise and the learned. That's because somebody's got to pay for the feast. And as soon as you've got a foundation laid, right, as soon as you've got resources, then you go and you invite the poor and the lame. And this is the way that the kingdom of God, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, has spread over the earth today. This is a metaphor for exactly what has happened with the Restoration. and. Bishop Partridge would be beside himself, I think, if he if he were alive today and saw what resources there are available. And of course, the church is taking lots of criticism for its financial resources. Those resources have come because people have been faithful. They've been faithful, and it's been a season of when investments grow massive, right? Not all seasons are like that. And one reason to invest now is, is because you can't always count on that. But now the church is taking uh, heat, criticism, and some abuse from people who think they know better uh, than what section 120 of the Doctrine and Covenants says. That revelation says, I'll direct my prophets, P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S, how to use the, the financial resources, the tithes and so forth, by my own voice unto them. And there's lots of people now who are willing to commentate, right, and tell the prophets how they ought to do it and so forth. I don't think any of us uh, understand the 
dilemmas that they face, the difficulties and challenges. It's easy to prescribe what ought to be done and pick like one horn of the dilemma, right? Church ought to do this, church ought to do that. But the leaders of the church are aware of and have to grapple with all of the horns of very difficult dilemmas. And we might say, well, they messed up this one or messed up that one. They acknowledge that they made some errors in listening to legal counsel, right? And they, they granted that, they paid the price for it. But I don't imagine that anyone else is in any position to do any better under the circumstances. And what is sometimes lost in all this discussion is the massive amount of good that is done, not with a whole lot of trumpeting and fanfare. The church, maybe more now than ever, mentions what it's doing in the world, but uh, maybe that's just a way of responding to all the criticism, but typically doesn't go around tooting its own horn, beating its own uh, drum. It just provides clean water enormous amounts of clothing, vaccines, wheelchairs, humanitarian aid, relief. You can't even imagine. I I happen right now to be the bishop of my ward. And just in my ward, just in my neighborhood in Provo, every month, thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of dollars are redistributed of the free will of the Latter-day Saints. And I guess I'm getting a little tired of people prescribing how that ought to be done by others, right? I'm much more interested in a church who is led by an internationally renowned heart surgeon, an eminent jurist, and a Harvard-educated Stanford business professor, consult, right? So let me make the point this way. As you know, there's some criticism that they, that they receive a just remuneration for all their service in the church. That's exactly what the February 9th, 1831 revelation said should happen. This is not new news. They didn't invent it. They're not paying themselves massive salaries. They're not getting rich on the backs of the Latter-day Saints. Rather, decades ago, all three of them took a relative vow of poverty, gave up millions of dollars of earning potential over their careers, and have, have led lives of modest material support. They get ample. They get sufficient for their needs. But it's not uh, even close to what they would have earned in the market, right? These are people who have forsaken the values of the Jacksonians and, and anyone else whose primary God is, is wealth. And they have instead consecrated their entire lives. And yet they get lectured from all angles by people inside and outside the church about how they're doing things wrong. I just That just seems misplaced and misguided to me. I don't claim that anybody has ever led uh, the church perfectly well, except for Jesus Christ. And neither have any of the prophets claimed that they've not erred. But I don't know anybody who would do any better in their shoes. And I certainly uh, sustain them because they've been called by Jesus Christ and he sustains them. Steve, thanks so much for talking today about the law of consecration and your recent book. I hope everyone will go check it out at Desert Book. This is a fantastic resource for understanding what's at stake in the law of consecration and how you can live it better. Appreciate your time today, Steve. Hey, thank you, brother. It's been good to be with you. Take care. That's it for this episode, Best Books listeners. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and our newsletter at bestbookspod.substack.com. 
Stephen Harper is Professor of Church History and Doctrine at Brigham Young University. He is also Editor-in-Chief of BYU Studies and Executive Editor of the Wilfred Woodruff Papers. He is the former Managing Historian and General Editor of Saints, the Story of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and a former Editor for the Joseph Smith Papers. We'll be back in two weeks to hear from Janice Johnson about the role of the Mountain Meadows Massacre in American culture. The Best Books is hosted and produced by me, Stephen Betts. The music is used under Creative Commons licensing.